Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have left, or sorry, sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, if you put your questions in the comments section of my Q&A videos these days, I may or may not see them. I do um, sort of randomly look at the comments on my YouTube videos now, but they do not count on me seeing your question if you put it there. It just, it just might not necessarily got seen. However, if you email it to me, it will be. Okay. Um, and please do, because I love your guys' questions. And I've been getting some of the most amazing and wonderful questions lately. It's really cool. So please keep them coming in. Um, don't worry about my shaved face. Next week, I will be back to normal. I just every few months, I kind of have to hit the reset button on my facial hair. And then I grow it back because my wife likes it better when I have a goatee. So... Anyway, um, so that's the what's up with the look this week. Um, kind of fun podcast this week. Not really. Um, I had a couple uh, 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 guests on who I had, um, so I, who I met through a producer and talked with them about a book about why they, they believe why people act the way they do. And it was kind of interesting. There are a couple of Christian pastors, and um, they put together this sort of pastoral counseling technique, which is really pretty loosey goosey as Scientology is, but. But perhaps, probably a little more effective. Um, so I was willing to give them some airtime and, and talk to them about what they were looking at and doing. Um, so anyway, if you want to check that out, that was kind of fun. And uh, let's see. Let's go ahead and get on with your questions now, because we have some pretty deep ones this week. Barney Saunders. I have observed a distinct pattern of behavior among ex-destructive cult members, but particularly among former Scientologists. That is, a predisposition or tendency to produce attack videos. These videos are typically published on YouTube and are directed at an individual or individuals who the ex-cult member feels wronged by or objects to in some way. Do you think that this practice of creating and distributing attack videos of this nature owes to lingering psychological effects of cultic influence? You've said that any person who has been under a cultic influence and way of thinking, particularly if raised as a child in a destructive cult, will continue to think and behave in a certain way for some time after having left the cult. Please note that this question is not looking to explore personality drama. Hey, Barney, thanks for the question here. And um, so I'm not going to say that people who make attack videos, ex-Scientologists specifically, or what are more commonly referred to in um, YouTube parlance as response videos, uh, because many of these videos you're referring to are talking about um, are in response to something that this individual or group of individuals has put out. And so you get these attack responses. And this is a very common thing all over YouTube and is not at all um, just something that, that exists or occurs in ex-cult groups or ex-Scientology groups. Here's what I want to say about this as far as the lingering effects of cultic influence on a person's mind after leaving a cult. Because, um, and I'll just speak from my own personal experience rather than try to project myself onto other people. I'll just tell you what I see and what I hear and what I know and what I've learned. And that is that 
you know, we can look at this or approach this from a few different buckets or, or subjects, right? We can look at this from psychology. We can look at this from neuroscience. Um, you know, the brain is, it has habits. It has patterns of behavior that become habitual and tendencies and, and pushes in certain personality directions that become, you know, reinforced by a cult. And so the more authoritarian or more controlling or biased or opinionated, um, you know, sort of things, uh, attitudes, behaviors are reinforced by a cult by its very design and nature. They want you thinking along very certain lines, and the language is loaded in order to make you feel that way or think that way. And the entire experience of a cult is, you know, as we know, it goes in that direction. So when you come out of a situation like that, it's not like turning off a light switch. You know, your brain doesn't work that way. It's You don't have binary decision processes up here where you just get to turn off all that cult experience. It's who you are. It's made, it's, 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 you know, it's sort of taken over your personality. And Hassan talks about the pre-cult personality in regards to, um, you know, people who have joined cults in, in this, you know, at a later age versus those who have grown up in a cult where the cult's personality is pretty much indoctrinated into you from the beginning. Not to say you don't have your own personality, because you always do, all of us do, but it's such a a monumental part of it as a second-generation cult member is the value system and the ethics and moral system and the um, the belief set that is, that is the cult. And you are never consulted about it. So it just kind of is laid in as this is how reality is. When you come out of a situation like that, where you've been in this authoritarian, destructive cult situation then the patterns of thinking you're going to have developed in this group are going to be along the lines of the snitch culture. Let's talk about Scientology specifically, coming out of Scientology. You have a snitching culture that reports on one another. And even if the person never liked writing reports, even if the person never wanted to rat their friends out, always felt that that was some kind of personal betrayal, they were still in that environment and were still subject to the pressures of that environment. Why didn't you write that up? You need to write that up. Where's the report on it, right? You're constantly questioned about this sort of thing when you're in Scientology is, well, you better write that up. Where's the KR? If you don't write the knowledge report, the KR, then you are just as culpable for the punishment as the person who committed the offense. So you better get to writing. You know, there's a lot of pressure on people in these groups, and this is just one way that this pressure is exerted. So when they come out of that, those those pressures still exist in the person's brain. They're still all there. And the, the, the reinforcement, the social reinforcement is the thing that's no longer there. But what ends up happening is similar social pressures or reinforcements start becoming apparent to the person. In other words, they get out in the world, they're acclimating to the world, and they start seeing examples of extremist behavior on, you know, whatever ideological spectrum you want to say. It doesn't really matter. They see these examples of this kind of extremist behavior where people are dictating behavior, dictating belief. This is what people should say. This is what people should think. This is how people should act. We have to have this and this and this. And if, it, and if those 
if if that particular extremist is is preaching or pushing a dogma that is somewhat similar to the value set that the cult member had before or is as a value set that the cult member is now picking up on they will still apply this whole other earlier belief set or value set or way of thinking and acting in other words to this new cause and they'll in other words they'll start acting kind of scientology like towards that new cause or new thing i did this a lot okay and i and i got called a lot of names for it over the years and some people have gotten pretty pissed at me over some of the stands that i've taken over things and sure enough you know on review i was wrong and I was being very assertive and being very self-important and being very self-right about it because that was the habit. That was what I was inured into being and doing and thinking as a cult member. And so when I've been sitting here for these many years talking about cult recovery, this is one of the things I've been recovering from. And, you know, it's, it's uh, I've, I've said many, I've given you guys many examples of things where I didn't know I was doing something until I suddenly, oh, hey, I'm doing this, right? It's like those onion layers coming off. You come out of a cult, and there are there are layers of belief you have to dive into and deal with, and layers of indoctrination and 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 uh, motivational sayings and mantras and practices and ideas about how the world works. And these can be very, very false, but that's not apparent to you when you first leave the group. So being in a kind of, you know, antagonistic, certain, self-important attitude, which is what Scientology really creates in its members, every one of them, um, all, dist- all cults really do, um, you are in the habit of being this way. And so when you adopt a new cause or look at somebody or something and feel disagreement towards that thing, you want to pound it into the ground. You want to make it very clear, very publicly that this is wrong and we're going to, you know, shame or fair game or destroy or whatever terms you want to use. We're going to take this out. We're going to deal with this. We're going to handle it. That's how Scientologists think about that kind of thing and ex-Scientologists too. And depending on really the amount of time that passes and how much work the person actually honestly puts into sort of shedding those cult behaviors, attitudes, ideas, habits, that's what determines how fast a person sort of gets off that cult bandwagon. And um, and again, I'm just pointing the finger right back at myself here as an example of this rather than get into the personality wars that go on in this X community and in others. I will simply say, look, I've seen it in myself. You know, I've seen I've, lots of mistakes I've made, lots of arrogance and, and conceited statements and nonsense that I've put out there over the years, mostly on social media, not through my channel. I stand by almost everything I've ever posted here on my channel. There are definitely things I got wrong, and I'm willing to admit that. But, um, but what I'm talking about more is in the day-to-day interactions with people more so than, you know, my video content as such. Um, 
So with these guys, you know, you hit YouTube as an ex-cult member and you see people doing these response videos and you go, that sounds like a good idea. And away you go, you know, and I have that's a thing that as a YouTuber, I have tended to avoid doing because it does generate drama. It's an effort. It's a it's an attack, right? It's an effort to um, get the notice and attention of the person you are responding to. That is definitely the goal. If they don't notice or respond, then fine. But if they do, then you got a game. Then you got a war, right? Then you, yeah, you got something to sink your teeth into. And now you got something for the fans to follow, like a tennis game. Ooh, 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 response video, response video, response video. And, you know, and that's a level of activity that a lot of people get into. And, and people here on YouTube love watching. Um, it ain't my gig. It's not my thing. I don't want to, I, I avoid it. I don't want to get into personality drama and conflicts as you guys know. And I, every time I have, I've regretted it because I've, you know, stepped my foot into something and people are pissed at me now. And I don't like people pissed at me, you know, but anyway, that's kind of what happens with this. So I, in, in, in all of that answer, I think you kind of get where I'm going with this, that it's, you know, that these lingering effects are serious, they are significant, they are um, sometimes a chore to deal with. And, um, and so, you know, the answer to your question is yes, I do believe that the lingering effects, the psychological effects of cultic influence can have an effect on that. But I will stress that response and attack videos are not only because of cultic influence. Um, obviously, you know, there's lots of people on YouTube who have made these things who have never been anywhere near a cult. So uh, at least not the kind of cults we're talking about. All right. So um, anyway, I hope that I hope that addresses the question in, in a useful and informative way, Barney. And let me know um, if, if you want more. Cyprian Ivanov. How much thought do Scientologists put into accusations that a critic is a bigot? Is it based on a definition within Scientology, a sense that the criticism is unjustifiable, or just a vague sense that bigotry is an incorrect negative view? What criteria do they use? Hey, Cyprian, thanks for this question, and it gives me an opportunity to talk briefly about how the Office of Special Affairs works in attacking critics of Scientology. Um, and that's specifically what you're asking about. So here we go. The Office of Special Affairs will do what's a kind of assessment on the situation, an investigation of the person that they are attacking. Before they utter a word about the person, they go through, as far as the, if it's an ex-Scientologist, they will go through all of the files that they have on the person, student files, ethics files, case files, all of it, right? Everything they know about this person, they will put it all in a room and summarize it and go through it all and figure out where are this person's weaknesses? What does this person love? What does this person hate? What does this person find revulsive? What do they find endearing, right? What are they, you know, that what are their extremes and, and what is in between? What do they like? What do they dislike? You want to find out what their buttons are so you can start pushing them. And so this is the research that they do. So the term bigot was used most emphatically against John Sweeney when um, Tommy Davis was kept, kept accusing him of that when John Sweeney, as an, as an independent investigator for the BBC, was investigating Scientology. And he kept hounding him and pressing him and pushing him on this button of bigot. 
because John Sweeney, as an individual, didn't like that word. And it is a harsh word to use, especially to a journalist, because it, inta- it attacks their integrity, credibility, and the entire you know, purpose behind why they are trying to do a story in the first place, especially on Scientology. So it's a method of attack and introversion. It's trying to drive the person's attention in on themselves, get them questioning, wondering, oh, am I doing the, what, why am I really doing this story on Scientology? Am I really a bad person? Oh my God, I'm a bigot. I hate religion. Ah, like that's, that's the, that's the goal. That's what they're trying to do by pushing those buttons. And if that had, if that button hadn't worked, they would have found something else, and they would have kept going at it until they had interbulated him. That's the that's what they're trying to do. Is the Scientology word for uh, it, for interbulation is for when the person's really upset and and, and agitated and like and, I, and then not thinking straight, not thinking clearly, not able to make fully rational decisions because they're all like you know keyed up. So that's the effort. Okay, so the word bigot is really just, um, it's kind of ancillary here. It's really just the word of choice for John Sweeney in that case, and for other people too. There are people who, you know, don't like that word. And there's other people who could care less if you call them a bigot. They don't, doesn't, no, no, you know, no skin off their nose. So they would find another method of attack if that was the case. So that's that's kind of where that comes from, and it comes out directly out of the Office of Special Affairs and its research on the target. The other Scientologists involved are simply told, this is what to say to this person. Let's needle this person with this. Let's get them with this. Let's bull bait them. Let's, let's rev them up, you know. And uh, anyway, that's the deal with that. Kevin Zay. What are your thoughts on people mixing activism with science when it comes to gender identity? For what it's worth, I'm fully on board with trans rights and equal rights for everyone in the LGBTQ community. However, these days it seems that activists have thrown science to the side of the road. If you do not check each and every box the same way they do, they will try to cancel the hell out of you, especially if you are anywhere close to the level of a public figure. I realize this is a touchy subject, but I would appreciate hearing your thoughts. Yeah, this is definitely a subject that I have avoided speaking on. But Kevin, since you asked me, I feel compelled and obligated to answer. So here we go. Um, And I'm not really too worried about this. I don't have some huge channel and I'm not worried about, you know, half of you blowing up on me here. I am fully for, you know, people identifying however they want. I really don't care. It's not my business. It's not my thing. So this isn't so anything I'm going to say about this of a critical nature is not based on the idea that I want to stop anybody from being who they feel they really are. And I'm talking now, of course, about adults. When I'm talking, when we start talking about children or really people under the age of 25, I'm always going to fall back to science. And science says that your brain is not fully formed until you are around 24, 25 years old. So I really don't think personally, as my own opinion, that anybody has any rights or any reason to be pushing kids in any direction at all when it comes to transitioning or who they, you know, talking to them about becoming 
who they really are. Because until you're in your 20s, you don't have a goddamn clue who you are. And even then, you just the picture really only starts developing in the mid to late 20s. And you really don't have life even remotely figured out <laughs> until you're in your 30s. And even then, you're bumbling around. I mean, it's, you know, and none of us have it really figured out. But anyway, I stray from the thought here. Um, I, just, I just really want to emphasize, though, that children are not in a position to be making lifelong, life-lasting decisions about their identity, their gender, their who they are, what they want to be, it's going to change. You know, that's going to be a changing thing as people grow and adapt and learn and experience life. So, you know, to to take a 10, 11, 12-year-old and, and insist they know right now who they should be for the rest of their life, how do you even begin insisting on something like that. I just don't I just don't even see that. But here's, you know, now that I've riled up enough people already, here's what I wrote down about this cuz um here's where I approach it from. This is a topic right now that is in the new uh kind of fad even stage where it's like you know it's new it's amazing it's exciting it's wonderful there's all this brewing science on the horizon and look at all these results of all this science that we have to prove all the things that we're saying and you know the problem with this is that it's an emotionally driven issue that is based on identity and social interaction and there is almost nothing more personal to a person than their gender identity, like who they are, who they see themselves as, their self-image. So you're dealing with something that is incredibly personal to people. And if they feel at all slighted, at all pushed back against, it is to them as though you are pushing back against them personally. And when a person is in such a state, it's frankly impossible to have an objective, unbiased conversation with them. And not only are we in a position where that's not happening, but we have activism occurring, where science is being used by activists for activist purposes. Well, what that really translates to is the conclusions already reached and now here's the science to support that conclusion. And we're going to ignore every other piece of information that at all counters or has anything to do with this subject if it does not agree with my foregone conclusion. This is how I feel. This is what I know is right. So nothing can contradict it. So therefore, the science that's, that's the correct science on this subject, is only the science that agrees with what I say. That's how I have seen and heard almost all of the LGBTQ science arguments on the topic of transgender. And um, I'm not saying that there isn't any solid or uh, reputable or credible science connected with this topic. I'm not saying that. Um, and it might, and I realize I'm, I'm suddenly sounding like I'm contradicting myself. What I mean is that confirmation bias is a very, very, very dangerous thing. I talk, I've been talking about it for years. And if, and, and if what I described of this is the conclusion I know to be true, and so therefore this science is the only science that's true because it matches up with my foregone conclusion, that's the problem. That's a problem because that's not science. That's not how science is done. That's not how science is formulated. It's not what it's for. It's not, it's not even for that. 
So that's my problem, is that confirmation bias motivated reasoning. That being said, you do have science here, there, the other place that says this. You have other science that says that. You have other science that says this. You've got other science that contradicts it. In other words, it's a new topic that is still being studied. It is not settled in any way, shape, or form. So you can think that the science is settled because you found the science that agrees with your foregone conclusion, but that doesn't make you right. It just doesn't. It doesn't make you wrong either, though. See, this is the thing about this is we're talking about uh, an emotionally charged topic that people are identifying with. Well, identify away. I got no problem with it, and nor do most people. Most people don't care. You know, it's not a big problem. It's not an issue. It doesn't touch their lives in any way, nor should it. It's your own business, you know, and you go, well, there's these violent people who, you know, come after us and all that. And well, good. Let's fucking deal with them. But let's not deal with them by overstating the case or taking this little bit of of information we've got and saying it's something it's not. You know, it's just too early in this whole process for us to have settled science on this issue. And that's why I don't go down the science route when I talk about transgender issues or LGBT issues at all, uh, because I don't think that we don't, I don't think we have to go down the science route in order to propagate or push for human rights and equal rights on this matter. I just don't think it's a necessary part of the argument. That's my own take on it. I know some people are really all into this, but I'm not. I just don't think it's necessary. I feel supportive of the LGBTQ community because of the human rights aspect of it, not because of the science. The science hasn't like convinced me one way or the other on this, and I don't think it's really the convincer that, that, that the LGBTQ community believes that it will be. Because just as emotionally driven as those activists are on their conclusions, so too are the, you know, wingnut evangelicals on the extreme end of the other end of the spectrum, where they don't really care what science says either. They just know the Bible says this, and therefore that's how it is. You know, same level of, uh, you know, nonsense there, right? Actually more so. So... Anyway, probably getting in all kinds of trouble for what I've said here already, but the fact of the matter is that I I see this more as an ideology, not a science issue, and um, and I think that we're, you know, because we're already seeing kids who have transitioned now detransitioning and coming up and talking. Already we're seeing this. Coming out and saying, look, it was a mistake. Why didn't the adults in my life say something about this? Now I'm never going to be able to do this or this or this because... You know, I changed my body in a permanent way, and it's very, very difficult to change it back or impossible. Um, I think that's a gross disservice to those kids. I don't think those kids were well treated or well dealt with at all, right? If if it's a problem for you, um, you know, this identity thing, well, it – anyway – I just don't think that that was a right move. And uh, and I do have opinions about that. And like I said, I've sort of held back on voicing them because it's not really been relevant to anything that I've ever been talking about. And it's just not something I feel compelled to be an activist about or go on tears about or get into. Um, so you won't really see me talking about this a whole lot, you know, at, at any other point. But you asked me the question, so there's my answer. Frank Gray, I have a question for you. 
Are Scientologists taught to avoid generalities? I've seen several free zone comments that seem to put down general type statements, but the most blatant example is David Miscavige's rants via text message to Mike Rinder and Tommy Davis about talking in generalities. He really flies off the handle about generalities in his typical unhinged way. However, the Scientology wins are all generalities. They talk about greater beingness and at cause and knowing myself more than ever before. There's a huge disconnect between what they seem to be taught and how they describe themselves. Have you noticed this? Uh, yes, I have definitely noticed this. <laughs> um, yeah, the, 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 this is, again, the contradictions of destructive cults, right? It's, it's built into the system that you're going to have this kind of thing. Um, David Miscavige beats up on these guys because he wants more solid information and generalized information, which is all that Mike and Tommy at that time could report, were not good enough. What this comes out of is the security checking. There is an HCO bulletin in Scientology called Sec Checking, Generalities Won't Do. And it talks about how you need to get the specifics of every single overt or withhold that is pulled on a person. So, uh, you know, and, and the language here, of course, I'm speaking Scientologies, but what we're talking about is when you're doing a Scientology's version of a confessional, I guess, where you're, you know, dragging the person's sins out of them, you want to get very, very detailed, specific information. It's not good enough to say, oh, I masturbated this morning. Okay, how'd you do it? What were you thinking? When? Where? Right? Anything else to it? How'd you justify it? Like, there's all this information that the, that the, the sex checker is going to get out of the person. So this kind of thinking extends out into when executives of Scientology are, are berating their juniors, they will use this same terminology or same nomenclature and generalities and, you know, I want specifics. I want to know the exact time, place, form, and event because in Scientology, the reason why all these specifics are being gone after is that Hubbard said that the truth is, uh, is, is uh, what does he say? The truth is the exact time, place, form, and event of a thing. So, you know, how did it look? Where was it? When did it happen? How did it happen? Like all these questions to get the time, place, form of the incident and the event itself. Okay. So that's how Hubbard defines it. So this is what, this is how Hubbard, uh, the executives of Scientology, Hubbard's followers, right? This is how they will they will use this to, um, you know, to berate their juniors. Is pretty much the deal on that. Um, so, and that's also why Scientologists in general will talk about, you know, no generalities, and they try to be more specific about things. But, you know, it's <laughs> again. You know, then you have these wins and gains where they have to speak in these broad generalities, as you point out. Well, what's that about? Well, because also in Scientology, you're not supposed to talk about your case. The specifics of your case are only supposed to be talked about in an auditing session. So when you go into an auditing session and you have all the specifics that you get off about all of your nasty deeds, 
when you go out of the session, you're not supposed to be talking to other people about all those specifics. And that's why the wins that are talked about in Scientology are so generalized. That's actually why. It's not because Scientologists are avoiding the specifics. It's because they're told, don't talk about that. So, you know, contradictions? Maybe. <laughs> but that's how that works. Valeria Felder. I love your videos and enjoy hearing your insight and experience with Scientology. You recently posted a Critical Clips video discussing the idea of past life clears and past life OTs. I've always wondered what would happen if someone said they were a past life SP or had been declared suppressive in a past life. Is there protocol for this or has it ever happened before? Would they be turned away and does the SP status hold over multiple lifetimes, once an SP, always an SP? Or, according to their beliefs, would they see it as a good thing you return to clear it up in your next life and work with you? Valeria, this is an amazingly awesome question because nobody's ever asked me anything like this before. And no, there is no protocol on this. I've never heard of this actually happening. Um, so I got to make up an answer for you here because it's really kind of like, wow, what would happen if somebody said that? Well, I mean, I'm, and I'm sure it might even have happened, but... The way this works in Scientology is that being a suppressive person is an eternal sort of thing until you have Scientology, very specific Scientology processes applied to you to deal with your suppression um, and your suppressiveness. So until you have those processes applied, you're still going to be a suppressive. Hubbard said that being an SP is not just a matter of being an evil, awful person, but there's actually a technical reason why a suppressive person is suppressive. And I thought I'd use this question to, so, as an opportunity to talk about this. I think I've talked about it in the past, but it's, it's really quite fascinating. Hubbard said that a suppressive is that way because a long time ago, they were just a regular Thetan, just bouncing around, doing their life after life thing, and they got trapped in some episode or incident of, of pain, of, 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 of doing bad things, of being killed maybe, or of, of uh, fighting others and stuff. He gives an example of like a Roman legionnaire who is stuck fighting a battle from thousands of years ago that they have never been able to progress forward from ever since. In other words, this incident lays like a template over everything they see. So everybody they see is this Roman legionnaire who's shoving a spear through their gut. You see, they're in this battle. Here comes this guy and he kills him. And he's stuck there, or he wounds him, let's say, right? And he's stuck there fighting this fight because he's trying to kill this other soldier too. And time just kind of stops for the person. Now, Hubbard doesn't necessarily explain why that happens. He, that's as far as deep as he really goes into it. It has something to do with the number of overts the person's committed. Not, not number as in volume, but, well, I guess so. Anyway, I'm, I'm sort of dimly recalling some of this. I didn't go look it up beforehand. But it has to do with the fact that this has been a bad person. He knows he's been a bad person. He's committed a lot of overts, a lot of sins, as they say. And now he hits this point on his on his timeline where mentally, satanically, spiritually, whatever, 
he ain't really progressing anymore. He's just stuck there. And most of his attention and perception is there, not here in present time. It looks like the person's talking to you. They address you by name. They have conversation with you. But in their mind, according to Hubbard, this person is really, in their head, talking to the Roman legionnaire. You see? It's that kind of psychotic craziness. That's how Hubbard described it. And he said that he had the processes to release this and and free this person, but they were not particularly interested in, I think what he said is he he wasn't going to be, you know, wasting too much time panting to deliver these processes to suppressives because they're suppressives. Who wants to help them? They're running around doing bad stuff to people all the time. And they don't really easily respond to psychotherapy. It takes a lot of work to sit them down and actually get them to honestly answer the questions because they don't want to answer the questions because they're stuck in this, trapped in this, you know, motionless time frame, you know, this time, this incident that happened to them. And so they, you know, so how do you even get them to answer a question? You know, it's a lot, it would take a lot of work. This was all Hubbard's invention, but I offer it to you as the explanation to the answer to the question you asked of, you know, well, how do Scientologists think about this? So if there was somebody who came in who was a suppressive and, and they, and, or they said, hey, I'm here for Scientology, but, you know, then they get some auditing and they go, oh, wow, I was an SP in a last lifetime. Well, were they an officially declared suppressive? Or do they just feel like they're an SP because they've read about it and they fit that description? And what they'll probably be shown is a bulletin from Hubbard where he says at the end of the bulletin, he lays out all the characteristics of a suppressive. And then he says at the very end, if while reading this, you thought you were a suppressive, you're not. Because one of the characteristics of a suppressive is they can never, ever give themselves the luxury of self-criticism. So, if somebody is saying they're an SP, that means they're not. There's the little twist ending for you. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> so, so, after, so, so there's the explanation for the SP, but there's also the explanation for why such a person would not be thought of as an SP. And there you go. <laughs> All right, let's do some flash answers. TD, I've seen numerous videos of Sea Org members with mobile phones. It's easy for Scientology to block N-theta on their computers and on their internal Wi-Fi, but it seems like the mobile phones are a giant hole. There's no real way to block someone using mobile data from looking up anything they want. Do they simply rely on SO staff not to look? Do they regularly sec-check them if, to ask if they've looked? It's really hard for me to imagine that they don't wonder why they're not supposed to look. I know it would kill me. I'm continually astonished at the extreme level of brainwashing within Scientology. It's amazing you made it out. Okay, thanks for the question. And I put this in the flash answers because there's something you didn't consider, which is that a person can have a phone and not have data turned on. They just have the phone. And that is the case for most of the people who have phones in the Sea Org. I was one of about four, um, four or five um, 
examples or, or uh, exceptions to that rule. I was given a phone, but I was out on mission running around the United States. So I needed to have the data turned on so I could do GPS, so I could you know travel around, and so I could look people up, skip trace them, find them, recover them. That was the mission I was on. So I was in a very special position of having a cell phone that had mobile data turned on with internet access. That was not common. And it was actually pointed out to me that I needed to turn it off. And of course, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I didn't, right? I avoided that as long as I could. And because I did that, and because I was kind of crafty about it, I got away with having that mobile data for quite some time, a lot longer than most people in the Sea Org have. So yes, there are ways of turning the mobile data off on those phones. And that's what the Sea Org does. If you don't need to have internet access for your job, guess what? You don't have internet access, period. Now, if you want internet access for the social, for the fun, for the, you know, that kind of thing, that's when you have the laptop and or the mobile device, tablet, whatever, and you turn it into security and they install the security software on it. And then and only then do you get to get on the internet. Okay, that's how the internet's controlled in the Sea Org. And I thought it would be a short enough answer. I could just throw it at you here. So there you go. Jane Smith. What was the most interesting part of the world you had ever visited, and did you enjoy it, or was it simply to be a vessel to promote Scientology? Well, in my whole life, the most interesting place I visited was Barcelona, Spain, which was awesome. Um, but as far as while I was in the Sea Org, the most awesome place I went was Hawaii, and I actually got to go there like three times. Um, not for fun. <laughs> it was work. It was definitely work. Um, but there were a few days we got to kind of fuck off and mess around and hang out at the beach and screw around. And especially on my very last project out there when I was really kind of, kind of starting to feel a little done with this whole Sea Org mission thing. And we hung out for about a week just fucking off in Hawaii. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, yeah, basically, that's actually what we got away with. We actually did. Um, there were very few things in the Sea Org that I got away with, but that was one of them, and that was a fun thing. So that was my, that was my most uh, interesting place to go. DL, do Scientologists tend to donate organs after they drop their meat bodies? Organ donation might go against LRH's goal to make the able more able, since those needing organ donations aren't typically very able to work and be on course every day. He just didn't seem the type to care about others, let alone those he never even met. Okay, um, there is nothing about organ donation one way or the other in Scientology. It's a pretty personal thing, and I never heard anybody talk about it. Um, there aren't any rules against it. Nobody would be thinking it's making the able less able or something. If you were donating organs after your body dies, they'd probably, if anything, most Scientologists would probably think it's a fairly useful and constructive thing to do with your body because it's dead. You don't need it anymore. You know, that's that's my that's my sort of take on it. But literally, I never had a conversation with anybody in Scientology about organ donations. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thanks for coming around and listening to me go on here. I really appreciate your viewership and support, and I hope to see you guys next week. Thanks for uh, inviting me into your home for this period. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.